This morning's message comes to us from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 4 to 7, as we will uh, finally continue our series on biblical manhood and womanhood, part 2. And yes, this is being recorded and will be posted on Sermon Audio. Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, Part 2, Distinct Purposes. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 4 to 7. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. Let's pray. Our gracious God, merciful Father, we pray that as we continue to walk through this a so important passage, of course, every passage of Scripture is incredibly important and applicable to our lives. But Father, in this day and age, we recognize that in the current culture in which we live, these topics that we um, will be discussing are um, incredibly divisive. Lord, they are difficult for people to hear. They are difficult for the church to hear. But they are so needed. Because we recognize that you are the author, the creator, the foundation, the, the founder of marriage. You were the designer of marriage. And so, Father, we dare not take our cues or our lessons from the world. But rather, we pray that you would enable us to humbly submit ourselves to your word and to accept and to believe that you know what is best. We pray that you would give us the faith to believe that and to live it out. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, one of the most... uh, you know, famous and well-known catechisms, as most of you uh, know, is uh, the Westminster Catechism. And uh, at least most, uh, most Christians are aware of that. At least most Reformed Christians are aware of the Westminster Catechism. It was written in the year 1647 by the Westminster uh, Assembly uh, in London. And, of course, as you know, question number one of that famous catechism... Question number one of that famous catechism is, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? In other words, why does man exist? Why do humans exist? Why did God create humans in the first place? It's certainly not because he needed anything, right? God is self-sufficient. God is self-sustaining. God needs nothing outside of himself. So regardless of... What other lessons you may have heard out there? God did not create because he wanted someone to love him or because God was lonely or because God was bored. 
Right? God needs nothing outside of Himself. For all of eternity, God was absolutely content and satisfied within the relationship of the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yet, nonetheless, God creates humans. And so the first question, I think, rightly begins with, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. I've always uh, appreciated John Piper's slight twist on that. He has said before that if he uh, were the one to author the first question of the Westminster Catechism, he would have said, man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. And uh, I think that would be a good uh, edit to that. But nonetheless, either way, man's chief end is to glorify God. Whether it is and enjoy Him forever or by enjoying Him forever, the point is man was created. Human beings were created to give God glory. That is why we exist. That is why all humans exist. The text most often cited when making that point is from Isaiah chapter 43, verses 6 and 7. There God says this, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. That is, people both east and west, north and south. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. There are many other passages that we could look at that make the same point. Romans chapter 11, verse 36, there Scripture says this, For from Him and through Him and to Him, that is, for His glory, for His joy, for His benefit, for His pleasure. From Him, that is, all things came from Him. And through Him, all things were made through Him. And to Him, all things are made to Him or for Him. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. We see again at the very end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 4. There in chapter 4, we're given a glimpse into heaven itself and how we will spend eternity. And what we're shown is that all of the saints are gathered around the throne of Christ and they worship Him day in and day out for all of eternity. That is what heaven is going to be like, by the way. Heaven is not, you know, sitting on a puffy cloud strumming a harp for all of eternity. How boring. Heaven is what we do here on Sunday morning. You know, that's actually part, that is one of the purposes for which God commands corporate worship. When the saints gather for corporate worship on the Lord's Day, we are given a taste and a glimpse of heaven. What we do here, we will do for eternity. So I always tell people that if you're bored with church, you're going to hate heaven. So Revelation chapter 4, we're given a glimpse into the throne room, into heaven itself, and we see the 24 elders falling down before the throne of the Lamb. 
And it says, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne. And by the way, I think the 24 elders is representative of all of the people of God. And they worship Him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne. That is, whatever rewards they have earned on earth, all glory goes to God. And they say, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God is worthy of all glory and honor and praise because He is the Creator. He created all things for His glory. But what does it mean to glorify God? So we know that, right? But you know, I always try to, I always try to put feet to our theology. You know, we know that. We're created for God's glory. We get that. We've seen that in the question one of the Westminster Catechism. But what does that mean exactly in real life? How do we glorify God? Well, first of all, the Hebrew word for glory is the Hebrew word kabod. And it means to honor or to exalt. But here's what's interesting is that that Hebrew word is cognitively related to the Hebrew word kabod. You can, you can hear the similarity, right? Kabod, kabod in the Hebrew. These words are very similar. And that Hebrew word kabod means weight or weightiness. It's actually the word that is used for liver. In other words, when they would sacrifice their cattle... And the, 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 the largest, heaviest organ in a cow or a bull is the liver. It's weighty. It's heavy. So in the Old Testament, when the Hebrew writers talk about the kabod of God, the glory of God, they are quite literally talking about the weightiness of God, the greatness of God, the magnificence of God. The Greek word for glory is the word doxa, which means brightness or honor or praise. It's where we get our English word doxology. We sing the doxology. right? The word doxa means glory. Thus, in the New Testament, uh, to give glory to God or to glorify God means to reflect or to magnify or to exalt the honor of God, the brightness of God, the beauty of God. Thus, to glorify God means to behave or to live in such a way, to conduct our lives in such a way that exalts the weightiness of God, the greatness of God, the honor of God to the world, to those around us. To live in a way that pleases God. Most understand that to mean to hear what God commands and to live that out as best as possible. To the greatest extent possible. And I know when we hear language like that, to hear what God commands, okay, so the Christian life is all about law, it's all about legalism. 
Well, no, remember that the two great commandments are what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your might, and with all your soul. So, you want to glorify God? Love God. Love Him with everything within you. And the second great commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Right? So, it's not about, you know... Oh, read the Bible, go to church, don't steal, don't lie. It's about loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. So to glorify God does mean, if we're going to put feet to our theology, it means to hear what God commands, namely the two great commandments, and to live those out to the greatest extent possible. We glorify God, we honor God by striving to do what God commands. To live out the purpose for which we were created. To not do that, or to compromise that in some sense. Yes, this is what God commands, but, you know, I don't think I need to be so extreme. You know, we can kind of as long as I'm sort of in the ballpark, I think that'll be fine. To not strive to live our lives for the glory of God to the greatest extent possible or to compromise that in some sense is to dishonor God. You know, one of the classic examples of that is Numbers chapter 20. Most of you remember the story. God commands Moses to bring water forth from a rock. People are thirsty, and he says, go to this rock and speak to it. Command water to come forth. Moses makes two grave mistakes. Number one, he strikes the rock. God didn't tell him to do that. God said, speak to the rock. Right? What God commands, beloved, he expects us to obey perfectly. Not in whatever way we want to. God said, speak to the rock. Moses struck the rock. That's not what God said. And then, probably the greater mistake is, Moses then said, Shall we bring forth water for you from this rock? What is this we business? And God says to Moses, Because you did not honor me in the eyes of my people. In other words, Moses, you robbed me of my due glory. You robbed me of glory, Moses. Because by Moses striking the rock, it gave the appearance, did it not, that Moses was doing this. Moses is bringing forth this water. And then when Moses said, shall we? God said, you robbed me of my glory. And therefore, he pre prevented him, forbid him from entering in to the promised land. This is where Paul is going with this. Men and women are created for the same purpose. Yes, all humans, men and women, created to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But men and women were created as well with different purposes. On the one hand, we are created for the same purpose. But on the other hand, men and women are created with different and unique purposes purposes because they are men and they are women. And so we see in our text that Paul continues then 
in verse 4. And he says, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head uncovered dishonors his head. Now, first, quickly, what, what is meant by prophesize? Right? I know you all are wondering that. Everybody's itching to get to chapter 12 and 14. Every man who prays and prophesies. What, what, what does Paul mean by that? Well, I don't want to go on a rabbit trail because Paul really isn't dealing with gifts of the Spirit here. He's touching on them. He'll really deal with them when we get to chapter 12 and 14. But we got to address this uh, to some extent. What, what does Paul mean by this? For the sake of time, let me just say that prophecy is not the same as teaching. There's some out there who believe that. Some very intelligent individuals believe that. John Calvin believed that, that, uh, that prophecy is the same as teaching within the church. And on a certain level, it is in the Old Testament when the prophets prophesied. They were teaching the Word of God so to speak, communicating the Word of God. But they're not the same. And um, we know that because Paul consistently distinguishes between the two. Look at chapter 12, verse uh, uh, 28 and 29, for example. There, Paul writes, And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. So prophets and teachers are different then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? So there again, prophets and teachers. Different. Right? These are two different categories. He does the same thing in chapter 14, uh, verse 6, for example. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues... How will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? So we see that prophecy and teaching are distinguished. right? Paul does not see them as being the same. They're not synonymous. So we'll just leave that there for now. So when Paul says that a man should not pray or prophesy with his head covered, he is talking about praying and prophesying. And he's not talking about teaching. He's talking about prophesying, um, whatever that may be, and we'll, we'll get to that hopefully at some point. But regarding head, in verse 4, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. It's important to understand that likely there's a double meaning here. When Paul says every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Clearly, he is referencing Christ because he already talked about that in verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. So Christ is the head of the man. So when Paul says every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, he's saying he dishonors Christ, who is his head. But I think he's also talking about his own head. In other words, a man who prays or prophesies with his head covered brings shame and dishonor upon himself as well as upon Christ, who is his head. He brings shame and dishonor upon his own head. He brings shame and dishonor upon Christ, who is also his head. But how? How does that happen and why? Well, first, the nature of the head covering is somewhere debatable, uh, historically speaking. Although what is not debatable is that we know that it was a head covering. 
It's an actual head covering that Paul is talking about. Everybody agrees with that. But what it looked like or what kind of a head covering that Paul is talking about is uh, somewhat debatable. We know, however, that it is not hair. At least not here. Don't run ahead and think you know where I'm going with this. But at least here in verses 4, 5, 6, and 7, Paul is not talking about hair. Otherwise, he would be saying that when a man prays or prophesies, he ought to pray or prophesy with his head uncovered, which means what? He ought to shave his head. right? If you're going to pray or prophesy, you've got to shave your head before you do that. That's not what Paul is saying. So Paul is actually talking about in an actual head covering. So what is this head covering then, and, and how are we to understand what Paul is talking about? Most likely... The most likely explanation is that in uh, the first century uh, Greek and Roman culture, when men would go into the pagan temples in order to worship in the way that they did within the pagan temples, um, very often, very often, the elite men of that community who were wealthy or powerful or important, maybe they were government officials, they would wear a toga into the temple that was made of an expensive fabric. And they would, they would put it over their head. And it looked holy. And it was a way for them to worship. But there was, a, there was another reason that they did that. Because it visibly communicated to all those around them that I am wealthy and I am important and I am special because I can afford this toga that is made of very expensive fabric and I'm going to walk in and I'm going to worship. So Paul wants the church in Corinth, the men there, to don't do that. Don't follow that model. Don't follow that example. Because apparently this was a problem in the church in Corinth. Money was a problem in the church in Corinth. For example, Paul will address that even in this chapter when he talks about the Lord's Supper. You look down at verse 22 when Paul begins to give instructions about the Lord's Supper. Here he's rebuking them and he says what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? There was a problem of wealthy individuals coming into the church with their expensive head coverings, wanting people to know that I am important, I am wealthy, I am powerful. And this was a problem in the early church from the very beginning. Remember, for example, in James, James has to address this in James chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Paul, uh, James writes this to the church. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were 
called blaspheme the name, the name of Christ, bring dishonor upon the name of Christ, bring dishonor upon their head who is Christ. James will say that in chapter 5 as well. He deals with it twice extensively in this book. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl, for the miseries are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your heart in a day of slaughter. Thus, throughout the history of the church, beginning in the first century, there have always been those within the church who believe that money equals power and importance. And thus Paul is saying to the church in Corinth, Every man who continues this practice of engaging in corporate worship, specifically praying or prophesied with their head covered, every man who continues in this practice not only dishonors himself and shames his own head, but dishonors Christ, who is his head. He dishonors himself, brings shame upon himself by wanting to show others that he himself is more important than everyone else around him because of his wealth or because of his position of power in government or whatever the case may be. He also dishonors Christ and brings shame upon Christ by acting in disobedience to Christ. Remember the story in Matthew chapter 20 where the mother of James and John bring her two sons to Jesus. It's really a humorous story when you think about it. These are adult men, by the way. And she brings her two sons to Jesus and says, I want you to promise me that in your kingdom, one of my sons can sit at your right hand and one of them can sit at your left hand. Uh, Don't miss the irony of this. Right? The woman is speaking for the men. You sit and be quiet. I'll take care of everything. These two men are quite literally hiding behind the woman's skirt. You tell them. And so she does this. And Jesus responds. Of course, the the other disciples become very upset when they hear about it. And Jesus responds to them in Matthew chapter 20 verses 25 to 28 and says this, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They lord it over them. Part of how they did that was the head covering. Walking into a temple. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. In other words, in light of what James says in James chapter 5 and 2, in light of what James says, 
The one who would be great among you is not the one who says to the poor person, you sit over there or you sit at my feet, but rather is the one who says, I'll sit over there and I'll sit at your feet. You have the place of honor. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man, listen, the Son of Man, God incarnate, even as the Son of Man came not to be served. You realize that? I mean, you, you look at the life of Jesus on earth. And Jesus didn't bark orders at his disciples and say, Go get me something to drink. Get me some food. Here, you rub my feet. You wash my feet. He was the one who did the washing. He was the one who did the ministering. He was the one who did the serving. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The ultimate form of serving. Jesus not only laid down his pride and his reputation, he laid down his life to be their servant. So Paul is communicating to the man in Corinth, any man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, his own head, and he dishonors Christ who is his head. Paul then addresses the women in verses 5 to 6. And he says, But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Again, there is a double meaning here because we see in verse 3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the wife is the husband. But we also know from Ephesians chapter 5 verse 23, there Paul clearly says in Ephesians 5:23 that Christ is the head of the church. So the woman has two heads. She has her husband who is her head, but Christ is her head as well. And this is how this passage actually applies to women who are both married or single. She dishonors either her head, who is her husband, and Christ, or if she's not married, then she dishonors her head, who is Christ. Thus, for a woman to specifically pray or prophesy with her head uncovered, she, when she prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, she brings shame upon Christ, and she brings shame and dishonor upon her husband. So what is this head covering then that Paul is referring to? Likely, this is, the, uh, this is a, a cultural reference uh, to the, uh, the new... The New Testament or the first century uh, Roman and Greek practice, right? I think Paul is referencing the first century Roman and Greek practice that modest women, respectable women, certainly married women, would wear a head covering of some kind when going out in public. Often a shawl of some sort back in that day. It was just a scarf that they would put over their head when they would go out in public. We know this just from historical records. 
Uh, for example, the first century Greek philosopher Plutarch once wrote this, quote, It is more usual for women to go forth in public with their heads covered and men with their heads uncovered. Close quote. In the first century Roman and Greek world, uh, for women to not cover their heads in public, to go out with their heads uncovered in public, usually that would go along with having their hair long and flowing as well. And it typically, most often, indicated a woman who was um, of sexually moral, uh, questionable character. I'll try to put it mildly, so to speak. Uh, Oftentimes, it was indicative of a woman who may be a prostitute or a strumpet. Also, we know that there are a number of portraits from the first century world, the first century Greek and Roman world, portraits and coins as well of women who have their head covered. They have some sort of a shawl on their head. It may also be that Paul has in mind Leviticus chapter 5, There, when a wife is accused of adultery, suspected of adultery, we're told the process of what is to happen. And she is to be brought to the high priest, and she is to stand trial before the high priest. And we are told in Leviticus chapter 5 that the high priest would let her hair down and hang loose. A woman accused of adultery. Thus, Paul seems concerned that women dress modestly and respectfully in corporate worship. He addresses that in other places. We see that, for example, 1 Timothy uh, 2.9. Verse 8 says, I desire then that in every place that men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. With modesty. Women are to dress. Peter addresses the very same issue in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, to the people that he is writing to, the dispersa. He says, Do not let your adorning be external, talking to women. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold, jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. You know, that's what God desires to see in women. He desires to see them adorn themselves with a gentle and quiet spirit which is very precious in the sight of God. Thus, Paul is arguing, if a woman will not cover her head in corporate worship, specifically when praying or prophesying, this is both shameful to her husband, and to Christ, who is also her head. Thus, how a wife conducts herself in terms of her behavior. That's what we're talking. We're talking about behavior. talking about what you put on, how you present yourself. But not just visually. We're talking about behavior. 
How a wife conducts herself reflects positively or negatively upon her husband and upon Christ. Here's how we see this applying to single women as well. Because how a single woman conducts herself in public, in church, by her behavior reflects either positively or negatively upon Christ who is her head. If she is going to bring shame on her husband and or on Christ, according to Paul, she might as well shave her head. She might as well shave her head. What Paul is referencing is that in uh, the first century world, uh, to shave a woman's head was oftentimes used as a, uh, as, a, as a form of punishment, not only for herself, but for her husband. In fact, we know this from the writings of the 4th century B.C. Greek philosopher Aristophanes, who said that one of the worst forms of punishment for both the man and the woman is to have the wife's head shaved publicly. And they would often do this. And not just that far back, even as, as recent as World War II, I know that in 1945, when the Allies uh, um, uh, um, freed um, Holland, and as they came in and they freed Holland from, uh, Nazi, from, the, from the clench of Nazi Germany, um, after they had left, many of the townspeople throughout the, the country of Holland rounded up many of the women who had basically slept with the Germans or had some sort of intimate relationship with German soldiers. They brought them to the center of town. They would put them on their knees. They ripped their, sh- their, their clothing. And then they publicly shaved their heads bald. And they were just humiliated. And then they were driven out of town. This is how serious Paul takes this. That if a woman is not going to behave appropriately, essentially... She might as well shave her head because she is bringing great dishonor upon her husband and upon Christ. In other words, Paul is concerned, when it comes down to it, Paul is concerned about how one dresses for corporate worship when you really think about it. One commentator I read said this, quote, Some men were adopting a dress code that tried to make a statement about their high status in the church community. Some women were dressed in a way that might have led to critical comment from outside the church. How does the dress we adopt for worship reflect Christian values to those outside the church? Close quote. Because it is true. How we adorn ourselves for corporate worship sends a message to the world. The question is, what kind of message do we want to send? What kind of message are we sending? But here's why all this matters. Verse 7. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7, Paul then says, For, right? So here's the explanation now. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God. But woman is the glory 
of man. Now, first of all, I want to point out, notice that Paul leaves out the word image in the second half of that sentence. That's not an oversight. That's important. Because both men and women are made in the image of God. And Paul knows that. Both men and women are made in the image of God. But what Paul wants us to focus on is he says, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God. In other words, man specifically was created to bring glory to the Creator. Women are to bring glory to God as well, right? We know that. We both, all humans created for that one purpose, to bring glory to God by enjoying Him forever. Women are to bring glory to God as well, but man specifically and uniquely was created to glorify the Creator. To glorify the Creator. This is why the woman... Go back to the creation narrative. This is why the woman is not created until everything else has been created. Until everything else has been set in place and Adam is given all of the rules and all of the instructions and then Eve is brought to him. The implication is clear. She is dependent on the man to teach her God's word. To teach her God's will. To teach her what God desires and why we are here, Eve. She was dependent on Him to learn that. What does the Creator desire of us? What does the Creator desire of me? What does He desire of you? It was the man's responsibility to ensure that Adam's will was obeyed and carried out. Hence, it was his job to protect and nurture everything within the garden. That included Eve. Because remember, the command to not eat of the tree of the, gar- of the, of the knowledge of good and evil is only given to the man. Eve is not created yet. The instructions to nurture and protect everything within the garden is only given to the man because Eve is not created yet. Those are his responsibilities. And she is dependent upon him. This is clearly why God created Eve last and then brought her to Adam. The Creator is honored and glorified when the man submits to his will. When the man does what God has commanded him to do. The woman, according to Paul, was created for the glory of man. Yes, to glorify God. All people have been created to glorify God. But specifically and uniquely, the woman was created to bring honor and glory to the man in the same way that Adam brings honor and glory to the Creator. The woman was created to bring honor and glory to the man by submitting to His will. Adam glorifies God and honors Him by submitting to the will of the Creator. Eve glorifies the man and honors Him by submitting to the will of Adam. The man was created, in a sense, as a helper for God. Not that God needs help. God doesn't need any help. 
But that's the point. God could have tended the garden all by himself. He didn't need Adam. But he wanted Adam to do that for him. So in a sense, Adam is created as a helper for God to help God nurture and tend to protect the garden. The woman is created as a helper for the man. The man glorifies and honors the Creator by giving 100% to fulfilling the purpose for which he was created. Men, husbands, fathers bring the greatest glory and honor to the Creator by giving 100% effort to fulfilling the unique purpose for which God created you as a man. The woman glorifies and honors the man and her Creator by giving 100% effort to fulfilling the purpose for which you were created as women. Women have a specific and unique purpose. Men and women were created with distinct and unique purposes and roles. Which is why these purposes and roles cannot be exchanged, shared, or delegated to the other gender. You cannot exchange your roles or share them or delegate them to the other gender because to do so is to imply that God the Creator made a mistake. You see, I should have done your role and you should do my role and obviously God doesn't know what He's doing and we know what's best. We ought never question the wisdom of God. This is how God created marriage. This is how He designed it. These are the specific and unique purposes for which men and women were created. Thus, let us strive to bring God the most glory as men and women. Right? The chief end. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Let us strive to bring God the most glory by living out the purpose, the unique purpose for which you were created created. Let's pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word that instructs us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that guides us. But Father, we know that we are We are sinful creatures. We are frail. And although we can see this and accept it intellectually in our mind, I know that in our flesh it is difficult to live out these truths for both men and women. But Father, I pray that you would give us all a collective heart that desires to bring you the greatest glory. I pray that men that are here in this place but men who will listen to this message, that they will live their lives and conduct their behavior in a way that honors their head, that honors themselves, their own head, but also, more importantly, honors Christ, who is their head. And I pray for the women in this place that you would give them the desire, the ability, 
to live their lives and to conduct their behavior in such a way that brings glory and honor to their head, their husband, or if they are not married, and to their head who is Christ, as Christ is the head of the church of both men and women. And Lord, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.